general aviation, assisting during times of crisis and inspiring those facing difficult circumstances. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for business aviation news and information. Perhaps no other industry serves to lift people up, both literally and figuratively, quite like aviation. And today we'll hear about two distinct efforts using general aviation not only to inspire, but to also fulfill critical roles in humanitarian relief efforts. My first guest is Maya Gazal, whose name will be familiar to those who recently attended the European Business Aviation Convention and Exhibition back in May. At eBase, Maya recounted her experiences fleeing Damascus in 2015 at just 16 years old and relocating to the United Kingdom, where, just a few years later, she earned her private pilot license. Today, she's an engineering intern and working on additional ratings toward becoming a commercial pilot. And Maya also serves as a Goodwill Ambassador for UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency. Maya, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't imagine what you went through in Syria, and it's truly inspiring how you found your place in aviation. Was learning to fly a childhood dream or something you discovered after arriving in the UK? When I first came to the UK, I did not want to become a pilot or do anything to do with aviation or engineering as a fact. I wanted to study political science. Two years fast forward, I learned that engineering was something that I enjoyed and I was like in the search to study something in engineering for university. And there was one day when we were staying in a hotel by Heathrow Airport, me and my mum. I was 17 at the time and from the big window screen, I could see planes taking off a landing and I was absolutely fascinated. I remember that we left that hotel room and I was so fascinated. I straight away looked at my mom and I was like, I know what I want to do. I, I want to do aviation engineering. I want to become a pilot. That was the start of the story. I then later on faced so many hurdles. I had people tell me that I couldn't make it because I'm Syrian, because I'm a female, because of my background, I would never get a job, I'd never succeed. And to be honest, that's what kind of gave me a push forward to, to participate and be an active member of the aviation industry, uh, whether by being a pilot or an engineer. The dream is definitely to become a commercial pilot in the future, to have flying as a job. And with that dream in sight, I have persuaded to do my private pilot's license and I got it in 2020. I am graduating university this year as well and always actively looking for ways on how I can build more hours, become a better pilot, get more experience and hopefully one day, very soon, <laughs> manage to make it to a commercial pilot. Tell me about your first solo flight and especially how you felt after shutting down the engine, knowing you were really on your way to fulfilling that dream. The day of my first solo, it was actually in a new airfield that I was practicing, like I was training at. So everything was so new, everything was so different and I was not used to it. Um, I had had about like three hours already in that airfield, but then all of a sudden I'm doing a solo that was very challenging. And I remember the minute my instructor like spoke to the ATC and he was like, change off pilot detail, now pilot gazelle, and he spelled my surname. 
and he was just like a student pilot, you know, for a solo circuit. <laughs> and then that's when I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is happening. Like, I'm, I'm actually doing it. I've got a little secret. On my first landing, I actually bounced and it was it was really bad that I, I remember like I bounced the first time and I was like, wow, like this, this is not looking great. This landing was, I was really fast going down there. And I remember I was just like so ready to be, to be done with this career, I remember. But I did my second circuit and it was much better. I landed, I didn't, I didn't bounce. I realized that the mistake that I made was the fact that I was going too fast. And so I re, I fixed that on my second circuit and that's really what I really like about flying the fact that we get to learn every day from the things that we do and I remember like that's when I realized what a great career this is and you know how how I'd love to do this you know kind of for the rest of my life. I'm sure those feelings continued in the moments after you passed your exam and check ride and you became a licensed private pilot and the first female Syrian refugee to earn a PPL. It was surreal. The feeling that I had, I just never thought that I would pass my test from the first time, but I did. I was quite scared, but I was very confident during my test. So when, when the examiner told me that I did pass, I felt like I'm in such a privileged position as well. To become the first female Syrian refugee pilot has definitely put me in a position to lead and to inspire. And these are things that I take with me every time I go on a flight and decide to record my flight and share it with my followers, is to be able to share my journey and experiences with others. I've celebrated and I still celebrate till today when I get on a plane and just know that the sky is the limit, literally. Like, I feel like in such a, like I said, privilege and like a position of strength, definitely, that that. Uh, that I wanted to do this few years ago and I made it and I'm still working towards it today is is definitely a great feeling. And now you're able to share that feeling to help inspire others. In what ways do you hope your experiences can help people, particularly those facing difficult circumstances? Well, I feel that with my story and where I am today and the things that I've achieved, I definitely do want to make sure that I represent a good image of females making it and females succeeding in the aviation industry, of refugees being accepted for who they are and Syrians as well. I definitely want to portray a positive image. But that being said, I also want to make sure that others who feel that they're being disadvantaged, who feel that they come from a minority background and they're being stereotyped or labeled, they can be like, this girl did not speak English seven years ago, yet she's giving speeches like internationally. She's got her private pilot's license and she's graduating university. If she can do it, then I can do it. It's very important that every day I wake up and I know that this is not just for me, that's, this is just for so many more others that were once told to know, that were once, you know, no one believed in them. And I want to do that for them as well. Coming up, we'll learn about an organization that relies on general aviation, pilots, and aircraft to assist others in need of help across Europe. But first, this message from NBAA. NBAA Flight Plan listeners, are you getting recognized for your leadership? 
NBAA now offers certificates and other credentials in safety, sustainability, and more. Visit nbaa.org to apply today. We're back now with our discussion about using general aviation as a tool to inspire and help others. Organizations around the world use general aviation aircraft to assist people in need and to deliver critically needed food, supplies, and equipment. Attendees at eBase had the opportunity to learn about one of those groups, the Humanitarian Pilots Initiative. And here now is Damien Van Oost, a pilot and operations manager for the Super Versatile Airdrop System, or SVAS, at HPI. Thank you for speaking with me today, Damien. Can you tell me how your organization was formed? So the Humanitarian Pilots Initiative actually started in summer 2015 by actually a group of friends. Um, some of them were getting their licenses some even were targeting to have commercial pilot license. And at the same time, they actually got aware of the tragedies that were happening in the central Mediterranean. So like Maya just explained, gaining your pilot license is something very, very empowering. And it's, um, it makes you feel uh, in a position of, of strength. And they, at the same time, were aware of uh, people that are in position of weakness, who actually need protection. And then with those uh, basic uh, two ideas and, and feelings at the same time, they just decided uh, to look uh, if they could do something, um, use their new abilities to, to help the people in need. And that's basically how uh, HPI got born. Now, initially, they had this nice idea and they thought maybe we can contact other partners and NGOs who already have experience in, in the area in the central med and see if maybe some aerial support uh, could help. So they uh, took their phones, called to a few partners, and then they found uh, Sea-Watch, which is uh, still our partner today. And they started to uh, plan up a proof of uh, concept through the use of a, a micro light. So it's um, quite funny because uh, when you compare the operation uh, today and, and how it actually started, the way it got uh, professionalized and so on, is, is, is quite amazing. It's, it's um, great to see um, such a small organization that initially started with a group of friends and a nice ID in something that actually becomes more professional and efficient. And those light aircraft were used to search for and then assist boats carrying refugees. How have HPI's capabilities evolved since then, Damien? So initially, when they had this uh, microlight for the first flight, they actually did put uh, inflatable camping beds in the wings. And um, they would hope that if their engine would quit over the water, the airplane would float a bit longer, giving them a bit more time to actually get out of the airplane. Uh, they also had a bunch of cameras fitted here and there. They had some radios. And they initially thought of starting the flights to and from Tunisia. However, when they arrived in Tunisia, the police came to the airplane and they were mistaken for spies, actually. It took a little bit of diplomacy to actually resolve that, uh, that situation. But uh, it didn't stop them, actually. In the meantime, with that airplane blocked, they actually looked into chartering other airplanes out of Malta and uh, organized some uh, flights out of there. And in the first two weeks, they could actually uh, help and assist in the rescue of uh, 200 people in distress. So it became very obvious very easily that aerial support, uh, some of the humanitarian crises, like in the Central Med, is very effective. With uh, a boat um, navigating about eight knots and an area of uh, 67,000 square miles to cover, uh, airplanes actually um, are the right uh, tool there. 
So little by little, the organization got more and more uh, professionalized. In 2018, we even got our own airplane. Uh, we flew more and more hours. Like, for example, last year, we flew about uh, 1,300 hours and 130 missions. That's basically a mission every third day. And we could see that we actually gained a lot of experience while doing those missions. And we also saw that we attracted uh, very talented and, and skilled persons, not only pilots, but also people that had experience in uh, management positions or in uh, ITs and so on. And uh, from there, it, it's actually making a solid grounding to develop other projects, like, for example, self-developed uh, airdropping system or connecting pilots and, and partner NGOs uh, to build a civil aviation uh, network. We fly every day where there are potential um, distress cases at sea. And we actually want to monitor the situation and observe what's actually happening from uh, which boats, what authorities and so on. So when we do those uh, flights, when we initiate those flights, they are completely voluntary. And we fly almost a regular standard pattern. And when we found a boat in distress, we take up all the information we can and uh, share them with the authorities or with uh, boats in the vicinity that can immediately uh, assist. The work you're doing is absolutely amazing. Also with us is HPI Pilot and Operations Manager, Manos Radisaglu. Where does HPI operate currently, Manos? We're active in several areas currently. So the, the, the oldest one, as Demia mentioned, is, is the central Mediterranean Sea in the middle or in the southern border, border of Europe, where nowadays we went away a little bit from the microlight but operate to beach barrens. Where, and then we developed another project where um, we were dropping goods um, from used um, parachutes of rescue chutes of, of paragliders. And that is a different project that is still a little bit in the development phase the system is ready to use and we have two big partners um, that aim for a mission in Africa that is to come very soon where most of our resources currently are going in obviously and sadly is uh, the war in Ukraine with the start of the war um, we immediately thought that probably there's going to be a need for supply goods be it time critical medical goods that need to go to the to these regions of war or be it vulnerable people for who the way over land is very hard to take or even impossible be it because of of disabilities they have um, or a certain burden they have and so um, we started to build up a network of, of pilots all across Europe plus our own pilots and aircraft the two beach barons and we said um, whoever which ngo ever is involved in that area and needs support be it in flying goods towards there or bringing people back for instance for medical treatment uh, we're going to be there and we're going to offer that for free and completely voluntarily and uh, that works uh, thanks to to many private donations and that works for many pilots and owners that fly for free for us just on their cost um, so we can do that completely non-commercially yeah just one one mission i attended myself was together with a um, pc12 owner that we got a request for uh, to fly a 11 year old girl suffering from cancer and she needed urgent treatment in a special hospital and she 
was being brought by a partner voluntary ambulance from the Ukraine uh, into the Romanian uh, border region where we could pick her up with a plane because obviously we cannot enter Ukrainian airspace uh, currently. So we picked her up from, from Romania and she needed to go to a special uh, cancer clinic in Rome, Italy. And the landway would have been around four days um, because it would have been all around the Mediterranean Sea and boats didn't take her because she was too injured together with her mother. So we picked her up there and we made a two, two and a half hour flight to Rome and brought her there. The ambulance picked her up and brought her into that special clinic. And I spoke to the, to the doctor later on and he said, wow, that girl actually suffered from a very aggressive cancer and said she probably without treatment would have had another two weeks to live. And having brought her to that hospital, she has real chances to recover completely and become a healthy young girl again. And the landway, probably she wouldn't have survived. So that was one of the examples where the aircraft actually made a huge difference. And we probably saved that girl's life. And thanks to the owner who flew her, completely on his cost, that was great. And that was very, very touching to see what we can achieve with that network we build up. Omar El Manfaluti is a flight instructor for the Humanitarian Pilots Initiative and head of the organization Central Mediterranean Operations. What are some other challenges you've encountered in organizing and performing these flights, Omar? And how has HPI answered those challenges? As a humanitarian organization that completely relies on volunteers and on donations, our first big limitation compared to uh, government actors or, or commercial operators is, of course, first and foremost, the budget. For several years, we were just operating a Cyrus SR-22 to fly search patterns over the open sea up to 150 miles from shore. So that already shows, I think, some of the constraints and the hard decisions we had to face in order to pick the right tool for the job. In the end, of course, as our operations grew more sustainable, and more and more people donated and also more professional pilots came in, we could pick the right tool for the job. And that in that case, for our aerial monitoring operations, definitely is the beach barren. We get a great deal of range and endurance out of it. It's got the right, right payload to carry both the pilot and the rest of the crew, the task specialists. The next big challenge we have is that we often operate in a part of the envelope, both as we used to with the Cyrus and now currently with the Baron where there's not really a lot of published data. So we really need to dig into our research because, to give you an idea, we fly our barons at about 120, 125 knots through airspeed. I mean, from experience and in normal general aviation context, that's not how you normally fly a baron at 1,500 feet. You go high, you go fast. But we have to do it differently because we, uh, we have to spot visually for distress cases so that we can inform the Coast Guard, for example. And because there's not a lot of published data, we need to really make sure we understand our systems, we understand our aircraft. That's definitely a key part of our work, to understand how to best operate our equipment to really help people in need. The second big challenge, I would say, is in the training department. And that's why I'm at home, uh, what I'm taking care of. We have a very diverse pilot pool, and that has to do with the fact that we're all volunteers. So everybody has a primary job in aviation, uh, be it as an airline captain, a flight instructor, all, all kinds of, of flying backgrounds are represented. But in the end, we need to perform a single mission, a common mission. And that means we need to find some ways of standardizing, of finding common ground. And that's made more difficult by the fact that by necessity, 
we operate in a single pilot context. We have only single pilot operations. So I think you can imagine how challenging it is to make sure that operations are conducted in a stable manner if you don't have uh, two people working together on the flight deck, but just one. Those people also volunteer from time to time, so they have a main job. They fly for the airline maybe 20, 25 days out of the month and volunteer just four or five. So there we really have to do some heavy lifting to make sure that our operations, which are often in a very hostile environment of the open sea with the, in a politically volatile region, but also here in Europe in wintertime, for example, in all kinds of weather with a lot of aviation challenges, yeah, are conducted safely. The third answer to your question, I would say, is in the field of human factors, because of course we have to deal a lot with fatigue. So just to give you an idea, the way we operate the Baron and the search pattern, flying very long missions, my longest flight time is uh, 10 hours, 32 minutes, single pilot, no autopilot on that day. That's not really a standard environment. And we need to make sure that despite these exceptional challenges, uh, people know their limitations and also have the support and the framework in which they can say no, if it gets too much. We have CRM issues because, for example, for our monitoring operations, we work together with nautically trained people. They're not pilots, but they can estimate how to best support a distress case and which vessel in the vicinity might be able to help and how. Or for our Ukraine flights, we have specially trained doctors on board with whom we also need to interact and to see what's best for the patient. And finally, in our work in the Mediterranean, we often are faced with really tough decision problems. So to give you an idea, the mission I flew on the Cyrus in last August, over the course of just six hours, we found a total of 15 boats in distress carrying over a thousand people. And we had to prioritize because, I mean, we have a limited amount of fuel. We have a limited amount of, uh, of still air range. And then you have uh, some tough decision making because you may have spotted uh, a handful of distress cases and then you want to check up on them again. And you need to see who's in the worst position, um, who needs help the fastest, where can I guide in the Coast Guard in the, in the, in the fastest possible way. Yeah, we're not, we don't have a formal training for that. We're civilians. Um, but we need to conduct triage operations quite often. And um, that's not always easy. So we have a lot of challenges in a technical way, in terms of training, but also when it comes to human factors in the cockpit. Damien, in addition to the ability to innovate and find new ways to use existing platforms, what are some other requirements for pilots who may wish to fly for HPI? Well, uh, usually people that join HPI, they're all uh, passionate and you can you can feel it from the beginning so when 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 you meet them so we actually did not lose that spirit of those friends that initially started uh, HPI that's usually the traits that we can see in all the people that actually join the, um, the organization and that's already a, a very um, good and first uh, start actually then of course depending on on the missions uh, depending on the flight purpose and so on for some areas, we need to have some requirements on currency or experience, not only imposed by the type of operation, but also in dealing with the insurance and so on. Now, more and more, because our, our missions are getting more and more diverse, actually, we like to have different kind of profiles uh, joining HPI, whether it be in the aviation or just being empathic uh, people that uh, want to do something about the problem they, they actually uh, know. Um, especially with our projects like the Civil Aviation Network and the flights to Ukraine, a lot of people can hope, help organize uh, flights, even though they have never flown some, with a little bit of training and with this passion to help people 
quickly pick up what is actually needed in order to be able to participate there. Also, recently, we trained eight new uh, drop masters on our uh, humanitarian goods airdropping uh, system. Some of them are physiotherapists, other are flight instructors, another one is a tree surgeon. They all bring actually uh, unique skills and ways of observing things, and that's basically what we like. How can others across the international community help HPI and its mission? Well, People join and help us uh, where they can. Uh, it be a full investments of uh, many, many days a month or just a few hours here and there. Of course, like um, Maya mentioned before, I think it's it's important by raising awareness uh, around us, and this uh, everyone can do. Um, by uh, sharing a meaningful uh, posts and so on. So we try to post on our social media. Um, if people uh, follow us and, and share our, our posts, for example, it's already helping us and uh, helping uh, what we are trying to do, actually. Aviation is often seen as a, a big family and, and you can do a lot of things. Or a lot of things are made possible by and, and through uh, connections. So that's very important. And then, of course, if um, some of the airplane owners or pilots can actually provide their time and, and their airplane to organize some of the flights, or if some of the pilots would be happy to join our operations in the, in the Central Med, we'd be happy to uh, look up how we actually can um, team up. We also understand that not everyone has the time to commit to such involvements, and, and that's absolutely no problem. Uh, people can just help us uh, here and there, for example, by uh, making uh, donations, no matter the amount, either uh, big or, or small. And there are, in fact, real opportunities to kickstart some of the projects. In Maya, how can we help the UNHCR's relief efforts in Ukraine, across Europe, and around the world? Like Damien said, by spreading the word, I feel like sometimes we take for granted how effective our smallest acts can be. For example, just telling someone about the work of UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, or HPI, sharing a post, telling your friends about it, making a donation, whether big or small. Storytelling is a good way of also bringing people on board on the work that like any charity does and for me with UNHCR I can definitely go on and on about the difference that they've made in people's life and refugees life people who have lost everything and started their lives from scratch from zero and the the efforts that they've made whether for like by giving them tent and food supplies like when they're internally displaced or relocating them in a different country their effort is hugely important and like the statistics show that there is a hundred million persons who've been forced to flee that's a hundred million lives this is a hundred million dreams and hopes and I just think that it's very important that in this time and age that we all stand together and share compassion for one another, whether with supporting UNHCR, supporting HPI. I feel like there are so many ways that each one of us can do their turn in advocating, in storytelling and in fundraising. And it makes such a huge difference because you never know whose life might change after that. It's such a powerful tool. And the one thing that I tell people all the time is that doing good, scientifically proven, gives us a happy hormone. So go and do some, some good for yourself and for others. It, it gives you a happy hormone. It helps other people. And it just makes our world a better place to live in.
You can find more information about the Humanitarian Pilots Initiative on their website at www.hpi.swiss. And to learn how the UN Refugee Agency works to help refugees and others in dire need of help around the globe, visit unhcr.org. Lastly, I'd also like to encourage business aviation operators to consider adding their name to NBAA's Humanitarian Emergency Response Operator Database. HERO is a list of people in the business aviation community who are part of disaster response mobilization efforts. In the aftermath of major crises, basic information from the database is provided to organizations coordinating relief efforts. Learn more at nbaa.org HERO. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking your virtual assistant or connected device. Of course, you can also download Flight Plan directly from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for a new episode of Flight Plan. Flight Plan.